This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. All podcasts come from somewhere. Ours happens to come from space. This week, <laughs> this week we are happy to have our chief engineer return from his time off. None of us can predict where our voyage will lead. We may suffer losses and miss schedules along the way, but we can hope to learn and grow from these experiences, even if Star Trek doesn't seem to understand what evolution is. This week we are discussing Discovery Season 2, Episode 6, The Sound of Thunder. I am your host, Jeremy Vilmer. Joining me is First Officer Commander Dog and our Chief Engineer and Returning Champion, Chris Noonien Singh. What's happening, Chris? <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, where was I supposed to have been all this time? Uh, City Alpha 5. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I was at. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, you doing okay? Everything going well? You got anything, anything you want to say about Star Trek before we get started on this particular episode? You know... Oddly, when I watched this thing today, uh, well, re-watched it, <laughs> it kind of felt old. Yeah? <laughs> From all the strange new worlds we've been watching. <laughs> I was like, man, I got to go back and watch this really old stuff. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> um, especially, this one was, was hard for me because I, I especially do not care for this episode. No, I was, I, I, you know, I was, <laughs> I was watching it looking for uh something super positive about it i mean not that it's terrible no but it it feels like a very much like a filler episode even though it kind of has something to do with the uh the red angel they're still looking for yeah something about five minutes to do with the red angel (laughs) yeah it just it's just not one of my favorites star trek has this thing they do where they they use the term evolution in a way that it doesn't really apply. Like one thing will change and, oh, that's evolution. No. Like in this case, this is like a tadpole becoming a frog. That's not evolution. That's just part mm. of the life cycle. <laughs> hey, Chris, before we get started on this episode, I had a little viewer mail I'd like to share. Okay. This is from uh, Jeffrey Geeter. Uh, this was about... Segment one of uh, episode 23 over on YouTube is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jeffrey says, you're wrong. The USS Enterprise is launched in 2245 under the command of its first captain, Robert April. So I'm going to stop the video here and let you get your facts straight. But I understand where you're coming, where you're, <laughs> where, where you, where you are coming that th- coming from, I guess is what he's trying to say, but it says coming thou. I'm not going to beat up on his spelling too much because I do that in, in comments all the time where I get all like wound up and then read it an hour later. I'm like, those aren't even English words. The particular section we're talking about here, we're talking about where shows fit in and not where individual captains fit in. So my <laughs> response was, <clears throat> make sure I get this correct here. This is about when shows happened, not when ships launched for the very first time. So you're wrong. I'm going to stop reading here and let you rewatch the episode and clean your ears out. But I get where you're coming from. No, it's just because we didn't talk about Robert April because there's never been a show with Robert April. So when we talked about the Enterprise launching with its first captain, I'm talking about Pike because that's the first captain we see it launch under. 
Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So we have the, what was this? The sixth episode, season two of Discovery, Sound of Thunder. Well, I guess we start with uh, Burnham and Tilly continue to go over the records recovered from the sphere while Saru is undergoing an examination in sick bay where he sees Dr. Colbert kind of looking all like, um, well, like a character on my so-called life. He doesn't look real happy. <laughs> he looks uh, completely bewildered as to where he's at and how he got there. Yeah, he looks a little, a little under, <laughs> a little under amused with life right now. <laughs> Thinking back on his own experience, Rue counsels him that perhaps feeling like less like who you were, you were going to feel more like who you were meant to become. Which is kind of an interesting thought, you know, by not not being so in connection with who you were yesterday kind of sets you up better to be who you are today. Yeah, and I, I kept, I, I, again, during this whole time where Colbert's back, but Stamets, I feel bad for him too because he's <laughs> he's trying to have things go back to his normal. And uh, it's very super obvious, especially in this opening scene that Colbert is having exactly none of that. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were things I found interesting and things I found just to be kind of off-putting about the way they handled their relationship here for, for the next several episodes. But uh, well, yeah, plus um the way Stamets goes into that backstory about a scar that no longer exists on Colbert struck me as super weird for how much detail he put into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there were a couple weird things on there. But, you know, it was funny. So when this came out, I was going through a divorce. And I had briefly run around with a couple of girls I shouldn't dated and tried to immediately get them to keep a toothbrush in my drawer just in case they wanted to spend the night, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking about that when Stamets was doing his, like, hey, everything's, you know, everything's right back to normal. And and Colbert's like, no, it's really, really not. I've got an appendix that I haven't had for 30 years. Yeah, that would be a a crazy situation to find yourself in. Yeah. So, like I said, I feel, I, I feel bad for both of them in this whole, this whole situation. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Dr. Pollard, who I guess was the doctor while Colbert was dead, goes over the results of Saru's examination, remarking that evident anatomical changes, hey, from enduring Vahari, was that the cartilage that had housed his threat ganglia was now forming into accommodate a new keratin-based tissue, like teeth. <laughs> and she was wondering if this seems about right. And Saru's like, I, pff, I wouldn't know. <laughs> no idea. No one's ever come back from this. Yeah, so nobody's ever seen the other as, side of this trip. As far as I know, I'm the first. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and even Saru here is going through the same thing that Cobra's going through. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to the same extent, but. Uh, there are definitely parallels to their two stories here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, also, by the way, it's nice seeing Tilly back on the on the ship. Because uh, then, you know, spoiler in, alert. In the Some future. later episodes, there she may spend less time on the ship, is yeah. all I'm going to say. If you haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, it was nice seeing Tilly back, too. Yeah, uh, it, was not, it was it was it was nice uh, dropping back into this whole crew, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I like Tilly. There's, you know. Um, one of the things, and I think we'll kind of see this as we go through this, Discovery didn't do a good job of putting you into the who the bridge crew were necessarily. Like, you recognize them, but you don't really know anything about them. Yeah, plus I recall, and I think it's after the android 
type character on the bridge goes crazy. I think it's this season too. Yeah. Uh, with control and all that. The person that they replace that character with is like, soon as they join the bridge crew, they're automatically treated like they've been there this whole time. It was <laughs> so weird. You know what the and weird- I still yet to know her name. You know what the even weirder part is, if I'm not mistaken, that actress played the android in the first season and then was brought back to breathe the human character in the second season. They brought her back to take the same role on the ship once her other self died. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. I got you. So, so somebody else came in and played Ariam while her original actress came in as a human character. That was weird. I'm wondering why they did that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering if uh, it's it was anything in particular. Like, uh, if it meant something. I mean, maybe not. I guess it might not mean anything, but... Yeah, I mean, it could be maybe they had no plans for her to die, and then this this uh, control story came up, and then they like, oh, her. but we still want to keep you. <laughs> yeah, they could have had her on like a three or four year contract that nobody wanted out of, and said, okay, well, here's what we're gonna do. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure, yeah. well, it could be, it could be anything, but I'll accept it. <laughs> Overruled. <laughs> So, uh, Sonoru is going through kind of a hard time here, and I had a little trouble with this as well because I thought the really interesting thing about the Kelpians is they were a race of cowards, and mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be interesting to have a character on the bridge who was always afraid. Like, they'd be like C-3PO, like, as a bridge officer. And Yeah, but I can't imagine, like, I think that that, that cowardness is played up a little bit more than than maybe... It is an actuality because I can't imagine that a complete coward like they're always described is going to make it uh, far enough in Starfleet to be a bridge officer. Maybe, but then again, they're not necessarily a, a military organization, even though we see them performing military militaristic roles all the time. All but the time. maybe that's it. But uh, otherwise, if their cowardness is really as bad as they always say it is. I find it, and I've never thought about that until you just said that, but I find it hard to believe that he'd have made it all the way to a bridge officer being like that. All yeah, the time. I, you know, there, of course, there'd be a certain amount of that because we see time and time again, especially with the captains and uh, regular bridge crew, that, you know, courage is an absolute requirement for the job. Sometimes even blind courage where you're like, okay, well, this is either going to work or we're all going to die. So everybody's kind of, you know, hold on. Well, isn't that kind of Kirk's thing? <laughs> uh-huh. No, it's, yeah, it's not chess. It's going to be poker, except this kind of poker will be blow up at the end if it goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's kind of like, you know, this is the very thing that makes me who I am and it's gone. You know, I'm no longer a giant, a giant coward. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know who I am now. Which is an interesting thing because we have Ash and we have Colbert and we have Saru all going through different versions of this. Oh, yeah, because there was that one scene with Ash and Pike where Ash kind of gets a little snippy with him over it. Yep. yep. <laughs> like, hey, man, some of us, uh, we ain't fully come back from that war yet. Uh, mm-hmm. So why don't you calm it down, whatever you're talking about. You sat outside of it. Yeah, you and your non-military <laughs> mission. Uh, over in the old ready room section 31 liaison speaking of the devil ash tyler meets with burnham and captain pike informing them that section 31 believes that if the seven signals were being generated by the red angel it may also be capable of temporal incursions and could be dangerous 
Pike recalls that the Red Angel had brought the human colonists to Terralisium before they could be killed by nuclear weapons. And Burnham recalls Spock finding her on Vulcan when she tried to run away to Earth after the Red Angel told him where she was when they were children. Nonetheless, she agrees with Tyler. They know a little too they know too little about its nature or motivations to be able to draw a conclusion. Before she can answer, Saru calls Pike to the bridge. They have discovered another signal. As Pike enters the bridge, Saru reports the signal is outside of Federation space. So they, dis- they uh, discover that the uh, signal is coming from the Kaminar system, which is Saru's uh, home system. And as they're headed there, Saru has to brief Spike. Spike. <laughs> Saru briefs Pike, Burnham, and Tyler on the two species they call Kaminar their home. His people, the Kelpians, and their predators, the Baul. Burnham reports that the Baul achieved war capability about 20 years earlier and uh, made a hostile first contact with the USS Archimedes. And this was in response to a signal from Kaminar. Tyler asks why they attacked if they're the ones who sent the signal, but then Saru admits that he sent the signal using Kaminar technology uh, from the <laughs> Baul. Um, so that is how uh, Philippa Giorgio found Saru, and that's how they ended up skirting General Order 1 and getting him into Starfleet. Yeah. Which they showed in a short uh, in a short trek. I'm not sure if you saw that, but they do, they do actually go back and show that. No, I haven't watched any of those. Okay. There's a couple, there's a couple interesting ones in there. So uh, Starfleet kind of kept away from them, and the Ba'ul, by nature, are isolationists, and uh, it made Starfleet agree to committing, uh, or preserving the status quo on Kaminar. Pike kind of says that uh, they might be open to sharing information because they, their front door is the one they got knocked on. Tyler sarcastically asks if Pike plans to ask nicely. Pike replies that as unexpected guess, it wouldn't hurt to be polite. <laughs> and see, these two, these two do not care for each other very much. No, everybody has a problem with him except for Michael. Yeah. And even she kind of has issues with him most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, those uh, you know, those <laughs> those kind of problems. <laughs> Detmer brings a ship out or brings a ship out of warp above Kaminar and reports that the signal disappeared before their arrival. Pike is unsurprised as this had happened at the other signal sites. As they're putting together a, an, an away team to go down to Kaminar, Saru's not real happy about the uh, composition of the team because he thinks he should be there uh, with them. And to disregard that, or to disregard him as a choice, would be to disregard the suffering of the generations of the Kelpian people. See, uh, Saru, now that he's not a coward, he, he kind of wants to go and like fist fight every bowel on the planet over this whole thing. Oh, yeah, this whole episode, uh, I think Pike has to tell him to calm down a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a few. Cause like, yeah, because this whole thing is like, oh, all my people have been lied to for their entire, you know, entire time as a species so you know this sets up a little conflict as this episode goes yeah um, which i mean on the one hand like i understand saru's point like who better to be able to you know lead people around the planet than him but also pike has a good point too like i don't know if pike comes right out and says it but you know uh saru is a bit biased in Mm -hmm. in that whole situation and uh couple that with his newly appointed anger issues uh yeah could cause some problems (laughs) yeah that's that's i think that's a big part of it is that now he's suddenly a hothead 
and he's coming at it from a particular point of view. Yeah, I mean, I can't blame either one of them for their nope. for their um, issues on this situation. Nope. That's one of the things about Star Trek writing that always works is that both sides are usually right to some degree or another. And that's why you get a little, you get conflict, you get arguments, you get things that you have to think out, you know. Saru and Pike are about to come to blows. Burnham steps between them, saying that the Kelpians have no knowledge of Starfleet or other inhabited worlds. So her appearance would be a shock to them, and Saru would be invaluable to have at her side. Pike comes up with the suggestion that Saru starts in his own village. Man, that's just, that sounds like a bad idea to me, you know? <laughs> All right. Yeah, that just, you know, that just sounds like a bad idea. I don't know if Pike knows this, but, you know, they all assume he's dead. Yeah. Better to ship him off to a village that nobody knows him at, so nobody's taken by a lot of surprise when he walks up. But Yeah. I guess thought I could you were see dead. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could see it from uh, the other point of view, too, like we were just saying. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, I'm sure there's there's something right in there, but, you know, at the same time. Back in sickbay, Colbert is undergoing another round of tests with his husband, Paul Stamets, at his side. Dr. Pollard explains that while his scans appear normal, his body was reconstituted from his own DNA, which was, for lack of a better term, pristine. Colbert notices that the scar on his left shoulder is gone, remembering that he had gone hiking alone in the cliffs of Cabo Rojo when he was 16, and apparently indestructible, Stamets adds. When the path gave way underneath his feet and he had fallen 15 meters and received a puncture wound in his shoulder. Oh yeah, this is the uh, this is that yeah. story that I thought, man, Stamets is uh, making a lot of detail about a scar that doesn't exist anymore. Uh huh. <laughs> Almost like he was trying to prove how intimate their relationship was, or something. Yeah, that's the that's what I got of it myself yeah. for sure. That is what it seems like. And then again, Culver's just like not having none of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah it's i mean it, part of this is hard to watch because you can tell that like you know one of them is working is, is being extra super extra about the relationship and the other one's just kind of like i'd like my own apartment yeah <laughs> a doctor named cash Cooley on the path half a kilometer behind him risked her life climbing down to save him and stitched the shoulder wound with a fishing line the incident left colber with a very sexy scar and inspired him to go to medical school Okay, that's yeah. That's one way to get inspired. Dr. Pollard remarks that any abnormalities with his senses are the results of his new nervous system, and that while she should continue monitoring him, she believed he'd be returning to his normal life. <laughs> Which, okay. not really. Yeah, well, at least not, <laughs> not by his intent. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Saru and Burnham beam down to the beach outside of Saru's village, noticing a little pylon in the village center. Burnham remarks that if she didn't know Kelpians were an oppressed people, she'd think Kamadar was a paradise. It does look like a really pretty place. Yeah, for sure, except for those ominous pylons. Well, you know, we all have our weird <laughs> pylons to deal with. Um, he remarks that his father, Eridar, had been in the vil- had been the village priest when Saru left. An unwitting collaborator enforcing the Baul's mastery over his people. God, could you imagine that? Like one of your close family members was like one of the dudes who helped your oppressors like kill you all when you uh, hit puberty. Yeah, yeah, but I mean they were they didn't know. Yep. So it wasn't like um, his dad knew that he was 
marching them to an early death. I mean, it doesn't make it any better. No. I guess, I guess that still counts as being an unwitting collaborator. For 18 years, Sarah had dreamed of coming home to his village. And while it has not changed at all, his experience has changed him and made him see it differently. As they enter the village, the Baul pylon activates. Nearby there, uh, Burnham recognizes some of the plants growing in Saru's quarters, which Saru points out that they don't grow as well on a starship as they do on their home world. <laughs> and they spot a Kelpian priestess gathering flowers. Saru approaches her and says hello in Kelpian, I'm guessing is the name of their language, and is astonished when he recognizes her as his sister, Serana. Serana is equally surprised to see her dead brother alive. <laughs> Yeah, but then, like, she very quickly, oh, I don't know if it's in this scene, but she does mention that uh, she basically saw him leave, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not sure why she was surprised to see him alive. I mean, I guess if you're saying it's been 18 years, you have no idea. You haven't heard from him or anything like that. I guess you could have thought he was dead through other means, but. I, I definitely. Would've, I would assume so after 18 years, yeah. <laughs> Of no no contact. <laughs> yeah. So uh, after some discussions, Saru decides to tell her the truth. That he had fought, fought, uh, sought his future out amongst the stars and been welcomed by Starfleet. <laughs> and now Burnham introduces herself as a human from Earth. And that she worked with her brother on the Discovery. I'm surprised his sister did not simply pass out at this point because that's a lot to take in. Yep, that's an alien on her home planet. Yep. I guess it's one thing to see your brother leave in a starship, and you probably didn't see any much of it, and then another to be face-to-face with a person from another world. Yeah, especially <laughs> since they say that the uh, the Ba'ul have warp technology, so they've probably seen some version of a, sta- of a starship. So some yeah. form of flying is probably familiar to them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and Burnham has to give her a quick breakdown on what a universal translator is. <laughs> and now, of course, she's going off on a flight of fancy about all the ideas of life forms and space travel and what out there, uh, what else out there could exist. And they ask if humans drink tea. <laughs> yeah. Information overload over here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of the things I always loved about Babylon 5 was every alien species had a dish called Swedish meatballs. <laughs> it was always different, but every species had it, you know. And it was called that. Yep. <laughs> um, I don't know, know what this word Swedish means, but. Yep, but it's in here. <laughs> we, it's, we have their meatballs. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm getting. Like, you, do you drink tea? And I'm just wondering, what is tea on an alien planet? I mean, probably something similar, you know, leaves or roots boiled or steeped yeah no no, no, i could see that but i mean what does that plant do to humans (laughs) yeah that that's one thing they don't really touch on a whole lot like they go to these alien places and uh you know eat and drink and it's like you have no idea what effect that's going to have on you yep uh it could be like insta perma death for you if you take a sip of it yeah, you could get diarrhea for the rest of your life. <laughs> I don't know which one of those would be worse. Uh, they both they both would <laughs> suck quite terribly. <laughs> well, uh, only one of them will only suck for a short amount of time. Well, this though. is true. I guess one would only be a problem <laughs> real quickly. <laughs> uh, as they are sitting around sipping their alien tea, 
Uh, Saru remarks that Serana sounds a lot like their father. <laughs> this is when Serana has to say, oh, oh yeah, dad had to go on for his old variety recently. <laughs> and, uh, you know, things just kind of keep getting worse for Saru. <laughs> like, oh, really? So that's sweet. Yep. And Dad's so dead. Yeah. <laughs> one more thing there, you know. <laughs> Serana uh, gets indignant with them is they believe the watchful eye had punished Saru. So the watchful eye is what they call the the pylons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's basically saying it's Saru's fault <laughs> that all that bad stuff happened in their family. Yeah. And apparently the entire village has been walking on eggshells for the last 20 years, afraid, afraid of retribution for whatever it was that Saru had done. <laughs> Oh, I'm laughing, but that is not funny. No, it's not. <laughs> it's kind of horrific, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I could guess they were probably all really, really well-behaved and friendly during that period. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Till they lose them ganglia, then they're all going to be each other's throats. Yep. It's all downhill <laughs> from there. Serana <laughs> senses that he is there for another reason, though. And that's when Burnham and Saru explain about the Red Angel. And that they know little about it, only that it appears in conjunction with a red light in the sky during times of crisis. Uh, Serana is again outraged at Saru to return following a red angel and not coming back for her. And accuses him of not being brave enough to face the balance, which is their their um, ganglia removal ritual. <laughs> yeah, so uh, not brave enough to to uh, face that with uh, in a in a culture that is remarked by sheer cowardice yeah. extreme cowardice i don't see where the insult is there no no me neither and just at that moment her little ganglia poke out and begin to shake <laughs> which she believes means that the uh the baul are onto them and then all the pylons begin to activate and uh this is something that saru recognizes as a precursor for the baul harvest and uh, Burnham contacts the Discovery to beam them all back. As they materialize in the transporter room, Burnham notices that Saru appears distraught. No. Yeah. Kind of odd, huh? <laughs> Just as the computer signals a yellow alert and calls them to the bridge. The Ba'ul claim that they have taken something that belongs to them, Saru, and that Starfleet had promised not to interfere with the internal affairs of their planet. Detmer then reports that the Ba'ul sentry ships are on an intercept course, and Pike orders a red alert. The Baul question whether Pike would risk his own people for one Kelpian, to which Pike points out that that Kelpian is one of his people. Uh, yeah, plus um, those those starships, or those ships that they have, um, look way more advanced to only be 20 years old-ish. Yeah. <laughs> they, there were a lot of things about the visuals with the Baul people in specific. That make them look like they should be like an ancient, ancient, ancient spacefaring race. Saru silently enters a turbo lift and goes to the lower decks. As the crew scrambles to their station, Saru goes to the transporter room and relieves the transporter officer on duty and sets the transporter to a time delay. So at this point, he's planning to beam himself over to the Baul, it would appear. Yeah, yeah. I kept thinking, like, man, Saru, don't do that. I don't want you to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, you know, just stepping outside the episode for a minute, I kind of wondered if that's we were where we were headed with this. Well, that's what I thought when I originally watched it, for sure. Yeah. I was like, man, I really like Saru. Please don't go, bud. 
Yeah. So Burnham follows him in there, and knowing what he's planning to do, and tells him to get off the transporter pad. So Rue starts getting all belligerent and hyphy on her, uh, demanding to know what Burnham would do if he didn't. In response, Burnham, <laughs> I don't know why Burnham doesn't say, hey, you remember when I killed our captain? <laughs> uh, Burnham points a phaser at him, telling him she didn't want to use it, but that Saru was not thinking clearly. Well, come on. She didn't kill the captain. She just stunned her, I think. I, I right? know, I know, but my version gets funnier, okay? <laughs> <laughs> she points out that he's not thinking clearly, to which Saru points out he's never thought more clearly in his life. Which is what somebody who's not thinking clearly would say. Absolutely. <laughs> you, are you okay to drive? Oh, great. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with me because alcohol affects your judgment. Not mine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I'm so good. It's super good. I'm, I'm, I'm better when I'm drunk, I promise. Yeah, yeah, I promise. I swear. I swear. I'm a better driver. And then he asks if she would not do the same for her brother, which uh, leads her to lower her phaser and then he transports away. She is so easy to get with some questions, you know? Well, well, She's like, if, yeah, you're right. I've yeah. done the same thing. What Damn if it, it was Spock? And, oh, you've mentioned him. I can't. <laughs> I have no defense for this move. My one weakness. Well, she normally doesn't have a defense for the sometimes irrational things she does in the name of... Uh, Sticking up for somebody else. Yeah, this is true. She's yeah. she's a complex character. She's a very complex character. Uh, Owo detects that the transporter is activated and that Burnham confirms that it was Saru surrendering himself to the Ba'ul. Uh, Reese, a character whose name I don't believe I've ever memorized before now. Yeah, he got a that, – that was a very recent uh, name that they gave him, I think, by the time this episode aired. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think he actually got that name this season. See, that wouldn't surprise me because they really yeah. did not introduce the bridge crew during season one. No, not really. I mean, we get Detner and uh, what is her name? I'm just calling yeah. her Owo because I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing her full last name correctly. And Owo. Uh, but other than that, except, for, I mean, we didn't even find out the, the girl we were talking the actress we were talking about earlier. We didn't find out her character name for a while Yeah. either. But, like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Outside of, like, the core three or four people, I still couldn't tell you any of their names. Like you're saying there, we had to go look up the one android that we, that <laughs> we should have been able to remember that name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Burnham goes to Tilly and Arium. Who is still working on the information collected from the Sphere to see if the uh, Sphere's archives had anything on Kaminar that would explain why the Baal were so determined to capture Saru when they found out that he had survived Vaharai. Burnham thinks the Baal know more about the biological changes caused by Vaharai than the Kelpians do, and they would do anything to keep it a secret. Arium I finds guess so. Them. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they would know. Yes, yes they would. <laughs> Arium finds thousands of years of statistical data on Kaminar and the spheres our archives. Burnham said that the Baul had told Saru that they did not know what he was. So the question is, what was Saru? Meanwhile, aboard the Baul ship, Saru regains consciousness. A moment later, Serana is transported aboard, confused as why the watchful eye had taken her, as it was not yet her time. She asked Saru why he had to come back. Everyone else had accepted that he was dead. But Serana had seen the light in the sky, the Archimedes going to warp, the night he disappeared, and became a priest to seek that light. She said his face was beautiful to her, but that she also hoped she would never see it again, because that would mean that Saru was free. 
At that moment, a trio of, trio of Baul drones float into the room, one of which slams Saru up against the wall, where he is shackled with, at the wrist and neck, and from a pool in the center of the room arises a figure that looks a lot like the dude that killed Tasha Yar. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting there trying to place uh, what the what the Baul look like, uh, but yeah, it does look a lot like that thing that did her in mm-hmm. in the next generation. <laughs> Yeah, so it's at this point in the episode, like, I start thinking, like, more Lovecraftian, you know? Yeah, it kind of looks like if Lovecraft would have wrote the ring to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's that, there's that, um, the ships don't look in place for a recently warp capable people. The aliens, uh, the Baul, the aliens uh, themselves don't seem to fit anything. And I was kind of wondering if there might be a way that they were the the original people that that critter that killed Tasha came from, or if there might be something like that. Um, I'm glad it didn't turn out to be that way. <laughs> but, you know, at first, as I'm kind of like casting around in my head, trying to make sense of them and their technology, that was one of the things that came up. I had a very um, Gorn moment with this creature. Yeah. Because I was like, no way is this, if all of them are like this, no way did they do all this uh, spacefaring stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't see it. Yeah, if you're just a big pool of ink and metamucil, there's no way you were building ships. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, reviewing the historical biological data, Burnham and Tilly realize the truth about the Vaharai and why it threatens the Ba'ul. According to the Sphere's data, 2,300 years ago, the post-Vaharai Kelpians actually greatly outnumbered the Ba'ul, driving them to the verge of extinction. The Ba'ul were originally the prey species, which meant that the quote-unquote evolved Kelpians had been the predators. Struggling against his restraints, Saru's evolution... It really just drives me nuts. Saru's evolution results in spikes protruding from where his ganglia had once been. Boy, we've all been there. Which then shoot out at the Ba'ul, <laughs> who is protected by a force field. The Ba'ul remarks that Saru was the first Kelpian to pass Vaharai in more than 2,000 years. But his primal fear responses remained the same as centuries ago, and that the Federation did not know what it had welcomed into their ranks. The great balance, the Ba'ul claim, is the only way to keep the Kelpians from destroying everything in their path. Saru rejects the great balance as a lion meant to defend the Ba'ul from the Kelpians, and to absolve themselves of murder, calling them frail and helpless without their technology. Yeah, so they make a big deal out of all this stuff in this episode, but the very next episode onward, Saru acts like he's always acted. Yeah. There's not a lot of... There might be some minor differences that I'm not thinking about currently, but as I recall, right after this episode and everything forward of it, uh, he just goes back to acting like he was before. Yeah, I mean, maybe not so cowardly, but he didn't really act that cowardly to begin with. In the, in the first season, there were moments of it that were kind of amusing, you know. Well, I mean, his ganglia came out, but I still feel like he kind of overcome that a lot of the times and still did what he was supposed to do. Yeah. The Ba'ul then retreats into its pool as the drones move in, including one with a bladed drill ready to bore into Saru's skull, another pin surrounded the wall, locking her in restraints. Saru breaks free of his restraints and smashes the drones into pieces before freeing his sister. 
His sister asks if it's true that he had actually survived Vahara. Isaru confirms that he has. Serrano realizes, as he did, that the Great Balance was a lie, meant to stunt the Kelpian's evolutionary growth. And it must end, Saru says, as he searches the wreckage of the drones for parts. <laughs> yeah, this whole scene was, uh, I don't know. It looked like a bad, like, early 90s heavy metal video kind of thing. Yeah. It, uh, him smashing all that stuff, it just, none of it was very satisfying to watch. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. And the deployment of the uh, the new tooth spikes in his head and all that was just weird and... It didn't really seem like an awesome, like, evolutionary defense against anything, you know? You only use it once. Yeah. And look, now, now like a bee, you're dead. Yep. I just, Good job, Saru. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't seem like this, like, awesome killer streak thing that they would have, you know? And then he's got, he's searching through the wreckage of the drones looking for parts. Like, for what exactly? What do you think you're going to be lay, able to Lego together to get off this ship? Well, he's through. very clever, you know? Some technology you've never really seen before. Yeah. <laughs> Back on the disco, Burnham and Tilly report their findings to Pike, explaining why the Baul thought Saru a threat. Just as Bryce, now who is Bryce? Just as Bryce reports the Baul are hailing them again, they are relieved to hear Saru's voice reporting that he is with uh, Serana in, in a Baul structure of some sort, but with no indicators as to their location. Oh, well, can't locate him on the sensors either. Burnham reports what was found in the Sphere's archives, which confirms Saru's suspicions of his own biological abilities, as well as the Bowel's intent to maintain their great balance. Why is this still... They, okay, obviously, we know what they're up to. <laughs> it's, why are we still talking this apart? I mean, we've figured it out. We, we, <laughs> it doesn't take Scooby-Doo and the gang to come in here and put this one together, you know? Nope. Yeah. Saru believes that he must somehow demonstrate to both his people and the Baul alike that they could become, just as Saru had been. Tilly recalls that the sphere had triggered Saru's Verhari, but Saru believes the process must be accelerated before the Baul can take action. Burnham believes that if they could isolate the frequency of the sound waves... <laughs> I love science! Uh, the sphere transmitted, it could speed up the biological response just as it had for Saru. Pike has reservations. I assume he had somewhere to take uh, Battelle that night for dinner, but he's not going to make it, so he has to cancel his reservations. <laughs> uh, what if history repeats itself? The Federation could not be responsible for the extinction of the Baal. Burnham points out that the Baal still had vast technological superiority, which would take the Kelpians generations to catch up to. Generations, Saru adds, for the Baul to come to terms with the thing they fear the most about Kelpians. Not their so-called baser instincts, but their rage. Yeah, this is... Um, <laughs> this is uh, kind of... Um, you know, I, I've been... Uh, ever since I, a trip to Fort Monroe I had, I don't know, a couple months ago, I've been reading about the Civil War, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what some of the Southerners were worried about in terms of freeing their slaves, that they would not necessarily their quote-unquote baser instincts, but their rage. What do you think they're going to do with this freedom uh, <laughs> once it's all said and done? They're going to come for our heads, pretty much. It was a worry that they had. So it kind of reminded me of this whole thing that Saru's talking about here. You know, I try to still 
keep room in my heart to be nice towards Southern people, even though a lot of them seem to be leaning back on this, um, the lost cause fallacy and like all these, <laughs> you know, all the stuff they've come up. Oh, states' rights. It wasn't about slavery. It was about this, that, and the other. But yeah, state, a state's right to what, buddy? To own slaves. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you're right, yeah. but so am I. <laughs> um, you know, I try to be a little more charitable in my heart towards some of this stuff. Because in my younger days, I kind of like looked at the land and thought, maybe we should just keep burning. <laughs> you know, stuff like that would come up my head. <laughs> and it, like, it's not right. But what do you, you know, what do you, at some point, you know what you're doing is wrong. And you're going to have to let go of this thing. And yes, especially if you know that as the second somebody has their freedom, they're coming at you with a certain amount of rage. You yeah. know what you're doing. You know what you're doing is wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, if that's your reason <laughs> for not letting them go, then you know already what you're doing is wrong. It's not an arguable point. Yeah. And it's going to have to end, you know. And I, I don't know. I just, how long did people think that they could hold off? I guess reading about Custer's last stand where you push and you push and you push and you push. And one day everybody just has it until the women <laughs> and children fight back and you end up with alls in your ears. Cause you wouldn't listen. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously their, their worst fear never came true, at least not the level that they assumed it would, um, which I imagine it will be pretty the same here for the Bio and the, the Kelpians uh, to draw a little bit of a parallel here. Oh, yeah. No, it's a good parallel that I wouldn't have really thought of, of you know, examining. All right. So we smash apart the drones and he's looking for skeleton keys or whatever it is he's looking for. Oh, so they come up with this plan that they're going to deploy the sound. Uh, Pike's not really sure about doing it. And they kind of talk through the points that you were just making. Saru points out that his belief is this is why that the uh, red signal was, was here on Kaminar. Burnham starts asking the particulars about how to broadcast the sphere's uh, transmission on the entire planet. At this point, we discover that this is what Saru's been making from his junk drones over here. <laughs> um, he explains to his sister this will trigger everybody's Vahari, which is going to be like not comfortable. Serana asks him to promise her that whatever happens, it will not be the end of their people. Uh, Saru replies that it will not be an end, but a new beginning. Saru activates the transmitter, which begins sending out the signal through the Baal pylons. His sister begins to scream in agony, collapsing into his arms as she begins to undergo the Vahari. I wonder how many times I've said that word in tonight's episode. A lot more than you've said it in all the other episodes combined, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, on the discovery, now at a yellow alert, Burnham reports that the sphere's transmission has triggered the Vahari in 63% of Kelpians and rising. Meanwhile, Owo detects a massive disturbance from the lake near Saru's village at least 50 kilometers in diameter. That's a lot of diameters. <laughs> the Baul stronghold begins to rise from the waters of the lake, protected by a powerful force field. Burnham believes that it could possibly be where Saru and Sarana are being held. The uh, pylons begin to activate in every Kelpian village with an energy buildup capable of wiping them all out at once. They are actually going to commit genocide rather than to let the Kelpians develop head teeth. <laughs> uh, Pike orders them to arm the photon torpedoes. As the Batwool stronghold begins to uh, begin sending its energy pulses through the pylons, a burst of energy flies into it from the signal in orbit. 
Within the stronghold, Saru sees the Red Angel with his own eyes. Now, had we discovered at this point that Saru's vision extended into into multiple broad uh, bands that we don't see? I believe we had. Yeah, I think so. I, it, yeah, I want to say that we had um, done that because I recall another episode where he was even saying his uh, vision was better, even with stuff that they had on the view screen on the on the bridge. Oh, you I know, what? Right. it was the it was the sphere. It's how they figured out that the sphere was trying to say uh, goodbye and not you know go go die. Yeah, I believe could he, be. he, he saw in a range where he realized that it was dying. Okay, so aboard the Discovery, the crew is stunned. Detra remar- remarks the technology required for a pulse that wide would be impossible. Again, everything about this Red Angel so far has been impossible. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like their own Claire Oswald, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. Pike and Burnham exchange glances, knowing that it, this was the work of the Red Angel. Returning to the village the following morning, Saru and Serana find the villagers confused. Stum still holding their ganglia. And when I first glanced at that, it didn't look like ganglia. <laughs> In the mess hall, Pike slides a pad across the table to Tyler. It's Saru's report, shared in the spirit of cooperation. Thanks to Saru's enhanced eyesight, he was able to get a good look at the Red Angel, describing it as a humanoid in a mechanized suit with access to extremely advanced technology beyond Federation capabilities. Tyler remarks that Control, which models Section 31's threat assessments, is probably rightfully alarmed at what could possibly be a time traveler with its own agenda, manipulating the fates of entire species. <laughs> Pike remarks that when the Baal were forced to decentralize their power across the planet, the Red Angel took advantage of the Baal's exposure to save the Kelpians from genocide. Tyler replies that the idea was not to end up in another one. The last war had taken a toll on those who had fought it. Punch, punch. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was talking about earlier. Yep. And some of us are still torn apart. Wink, wink. Yeah, I guess, I guess him quite literally. Yep. In oh, some yeah. ways. <laughs> He takes Saru's report and leaves Pike alone in the mess hall. In Saru's quarters, Serana looks down at Kaminar, mesmerized by the sight. Saru remarked he had felt the same way the first time he had seen his world from orbit. Serana notes that he took home with him, noting the various native plants he had grown in his quarters. I actually like the design of his quarters quite a bit. Yeah. It, it's a really, in, a really individual, and it doesn't look like anybody else's. It's really cool. Yeah, for sure. I always think the same thing when it shows the inside of his quarters. Yeah. Saru turns to Burnham, standing behind him, and thanks her for her help. Burnham is reminded of of a Greek tragedy writer who wrote that he who learns must suffer. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even in our sleep, paying a ah, cannot forget falls drop by drop from the heart. She admits that seeing Saru with Serana has taught her one thing, and she needs to go home to Vulcan. Dum, dum, dum. Mm-hmm. We're off. Uh, we're off to get back to the story at this point, people. <laughs> uh, before we get too far, Chris, you got any notes on where we're headed next week or anything you want to nitpick? Oh, uh, <sighs> yeah. I mean, like I said, the, at the front of this, uh, uh, this is not, I mean, it's not a bad episode, but given especially this big arc that they have, I don't know. It just, Actually, I guess there's a couple uh, episodes in this season that felt like uh, filler-type things. I mean, the the story in this one was good and everything, so I'm not saying that, you know, watching Saru 
basically free his entire species from bondage was a terrible thing to watch, but <laughs> um, it's not one of the standout episodes. No, it's not. I don't think so. Not to me. Yeah. Where are we headed next week? Oh, let's see here. The action begins in a dangerous prison. Burnham and an unscrupulous soldier are irresistibly drawn together. Unfortunately, he is 10,000 years older than her. After everything, they part on bad terms. Oh, such such yeah. heartache. Yeah, uh, Michael's always uh, something happening to her. Yeah, it's, uh, always, it's like a Greek tragedy with her. <laughs> Shakespeare, even. Yeah, Shakespearean. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> all right well everybody else if you have any questions comments or theories you want to run by us head up our website at strangenewtrekshow.com or follow the links in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice please rate and review us wherever you listen to us it's a small step for you but a giant leap for this show i want to give a special thanks to miguel esparza for the strange new track theme and also will harding for all of his work in the youtube department thank you all for listening don't forget to set your phasers to stun And join us next time when we're off to the next planet of the week.